Hello, I'm Skosha Monkovic. Welcome back for another episode of Creative Responders in Conversation, our interview series where we hear from people on the front lines of the arts and emergency management sector as they prepare, respond, and recover from disasters. First Nations peoples are disproportionately impacted by disasters in Australia, but research and practical guidance about how the recovery system can better support First Nations peoples is limited. Today, we're looking into this with our guest Sam Savage. Sam works for Australian Red Cross as the Northern Queensland Emergency Services Regional Coordinator, where he manages a response, recovery and community resilience programs with a focus on psychosocial support. He's also the chairman of the First Nations Recovery Group, a national network within the Australian Red Cross team, and a member of the organisation's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership team. But for myself, being part of these First Nation groups that within Red Cross and being an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person myself, I have a great passion to make sure that we're advocating around recognition, inclusion, but also empowerment of our peoples and communities within the disaster context. So making sure that we can create a voice to bring to the table and and hopefully get support to empower our people to become more resilient in their own communities. I wanted to speak with Sam about his perspective on the specific challenges faced by Indigenous communities in a disaster context. What kind of action organisations like Red Cross are doing to address this? And also, how our emergency management systems can improve to better serve marginalised communities. We recorded this episode in early March, just a few days before the Queensland and New South Wales flooding events took place. I wanted to mention this in case you're wondering why we don't discuss that particular emergency directly, as I know it's been top of mind and hearts for many of us over these past few weeks. It's something we will address in the future through other podcast episodes. For now, please enjoy my conversation with creative responder Sam Savage. Well, welcome, Sam. Thanks for joining us today. I'm um, talking to you from uh, Mianjin, Yagara Turrbal country here in Brisbane. How are you today? Where are you calling us from? Hi, Scotia. Great to be here and joining you from the Townsville region up in North Queensland. So I'd like to uh, acknowledge the Bindle and Wagarukaba traditional owner groups whose land I'm uh, presenting from uh, for this podcast. Great. Well, could we start off by telling us a little about your country there, Sam? What about the area where you live and work at the moment, that beautiful dry country? <laughs> yeah, Townsville's uh, part of the dry tropics region up in North Queensland. Um, and if I can compare it to far north Queensland, such as Cairns, um, they're more known as the wet tropics, so a lot more rain up further, a bit more greener. Um, But as I said, we're along the coast, so uh, live off the the salt water, the coastal side of life, but also live uh, off the land in regards to, you know, we have our freshwater holes and and rivers and lakes that um, we love to connect to as well. So, um, you know, Townsville's roughly over 200,000 people population-wise. Um, we have a high population of Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander uh, people living within the uh, city of Townsville, uh, but also a whole range of other diverse community groups 
uh, that is growing so much in a in a region that um, you know it's, it's it's lovely up here to live and and um, and grow. So your current role uh, is with Red Cross. You're the North Queensland Emergency Service Regional Coordinator. In addition to that, you're also the chairperson of the Australian Red Cross National First Nations Recovery Group and a member of their National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leadership team. Could you describe for us, from your perspective, why it's so essential that we have a focus on First Nations peoples within this disaster context that you're working with, particularly at the moment? Yeah, I think I think um, the, the importance of not just First Nations people, but more so marginalised groups within the disaster management um, space. Um, obviously, First Nations uh, people are identified as one of those people that they like to be known as uh, vulnerable groups. Um, we have other groups that we've identified through a recovery phase after a response of an emergency, and some of those groups may be, you know, cultural and linguistic diverse groups. Um, people with a disability, um, the age sector, uh, elders, um, even the youth sector. You know, there's a whole range of different groups, but for myself, being part of these uh, First Nation groups that within Red Cross um, and being an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person myself, I have a great passion to make sure that we're advocating around recognition, inclusion, but also empowerment of our um peoples and communities within the disaster context. So making sure that we can create a voice to bring to the table um, and and hopefully get support to empower our people to become more resilient in their own communities. So I think the Red Cross First Nations Recovery Group is kind of very new. It's a sort of an evolving uh, context of work for the Red Cross particularly, but also probably within uh, emergency management across the board. What, what are some of the projects you're working at the moment or where do you see this kind of group going in terms of the focus that you're developing? Yeah, the First Nations uh, Recovery Group, it, it kicked off probably last year, late last year and maybe no, November. And how it occurred is we, we've, we received a bit of funding through, I think it was the Bushfire Program, and a few positions were created in identified roles across the country. So what we thought would be a, a, an opportunity was to, to connect um, some of those identified positions, um, obviously filled by Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander um, members, and connect them as a, as a group and use, use the group as more of a support base to, to learn from each other, to bounce off each other with ideas, um, experiences, what are the gaps within the community sector around recovery, um, but also then we looked at our group as a collective to add value to Red Cross's response community resilience building around First Nations people. And in saying that, it was around adding a, a cultural lens to our emergency services sector, not just internally, but also externally to other agencies that might be in that space. So can you unpack what you mean by that, Sam, like to add a cultural lens? It's a kind of language that people can assume so many things about but what what do you actually mean when you when you say that or as an organization when red cross says that a few examples um, i can give is a lot of resources that we provide out to community sectors um, around preparedness um, and recovery it is very uh, mainstream for a whole of community approach 
that's good. Um, but as as First Nations people and, and people that live out, not just in remote communities, but even in regional settings, a lot of the communication or the, the strategies that we're trying to provide information doesn't really, not so much doesn't, but may not resonate with a whole range of family groups within within our space. So what we try to do is make it a bit more cultural appropriate, add our type of language into uh, those sort of resources, whether it be training, whether it be documents, documentations, um, and so forth. So we'll work really closely with the different programs within Red Cross Emergency Services to provide, uh, what is it, knowledge, our practices, our experiences, our lived experiences, but also evidence-based research that we can utilise around First Nations people. So it gives people, uh, and not just our First Nations people, but also our volunteers that are going out into the field to do outreach or to, to provide psychological first aid um, or work in an evacuation centre in a remote community or in a in a regional community that it has um you know a high population of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, a bit more awareness around protocols around the communication styles that they're used to delivering messaging through mightn't be the 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 right style for that particular group or that particular community. So it's around trying to give a bit more support around information dissemination, knowing how to be aware of how to... Well, deepening deepening knowledge. Yeah, deepening knowledge, changing up the practice of not just um, having a one-shoe-fits-all approach. Um, let's try to tailor it to make sure it fits that specific group. So, as I said, focusing on our First Nations people, we'll try to uh, tailor programs, training, uh, resources that will really resonate with our community members. I just wanted to add as well... Um, around the advocacy piece as well, uh, when we're at the table with external providers um, in the, you know, disaster management space, um, a lot of conversation will be around the different pillars that they like to call it, infrastructure, environment, political, economic, um, human and social. Obviously, human and social, we get a good opportunity to have conversations with um, government non-government bodies um, around these different marginalised groups. Um, but for me, it is around making sure that when we are responding or building community resilience in our in the communities that they may be in, um, it's really important that they do identify these different types of groups. And in this conversation, we're talking First Nations people. So it's that very much people-centred approach in terms of ensuring that we're identifying needs across the board. I've come across this very interesting Indigenous-led research project that's coming out of ANU. It's a national study of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander wellbeing, so looking at cultural wellbeing indicators. It's a kind of... It's a comprehensive uh, longitudinal study about how strong culture is related to good health and well-being and what are the kind of frames of reference that you need to be holding and balancing to to get good individual health and well-being and good collective community health and well-being. And could you speak about your understanding and experience that the role culture and connection to country plays in health and well-being for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and why is it so important that we need to contextualise any approach that we have, particularly in a recovery space around 
all of those structural knowledges that hold your communities together particularly? Yeah, I think um, for us, you know, when a disaster does hit a community, um, it does have an impact um, uh, on everybody. But for First Nations people, there's other impacts that are um, that are, need to be considered around our people, such as country, for example. There's a lot of cultural heritage sites out on, on country. And when we say country and community, country is about everything within a community. So it's not just about the infrastructure. It's not just about the household damage um, and, and roofs flying off. It's about our country, as in people have responsibility to protect, preserve and maintain cultural heritage sites. So when uh, a cyclone or a flood or a bushfire may um, unfortunately impact uh, someone's um, area, they're the types of stuff that can really um, emotionally, spiritually, physically, obviously, um, you know, damage someone's well-being. And, and for our people, we have responsibility to protect the land, um, in particular traditional owner groups within all parts of Australia. They're custodians of their own country and they're, their primary role is to try to make sure that some of those sacred sites, spiritual sites, are, are looked after and maintained. So when um, it is impacted, how do we recover? This sort of stuff really isn't at the, at the forefront of conversations within disaster recovery, and it really um, is important that we need to consider those type of impacts for First Nations people. As for culture people may unfortunately have to move from their own homeland to another homeland due to impacts of, of a bushfire or, or a flood or whatever, and they may, may, may not be able to return um, for months, for years, or however long. Over that period of time, they're losing connection to country, they're losing their opportunity to practice cultural, traditional hunting, traditional medicines, collecting their traditional foods as they, as they would do in any part of Australia. So they're the types of stuff that really impact us differently to the broader community. I had a very rich conversation with Uncle Milton Lawton. Um, he's from Carnarvon Gorge area. And he was talking about when you carry sorrow or grief, uh, you carry it's like a weight in your body, in your system. It's not necessarily a healthy weight to carry. And so in his culture, they take that sorrow and grief to country and country holds it for them but they don't have to carry it in a day-to-day way so it becomes weighted and unhealthy. I'm kind of curious to know, well, how does that work in the reverse? Like if if country holds your grief or our grief, how do we hold it, like in a, its uh, grief and hurt? Because that's what happens in a disaster. You know, our country is is hurt or damaged in some way. How do we balance? Mm. How do we... How do you perceive the manage of that imbalance for someone who's a custodian? Yeah, look, it's a very good, very good point. Um, as I said, it's a sense of belonging to to come back to country to heal, um, and and can really resonate from that conversation that Uncle shared with you, Scotia. Um, and for for us around how do we look after country? This is about um, collaborating with other external agencies and and looking at the preparedness around how do we build resilience, not only to the people, but to country itself. So we may, you know, an example is we have a whole range of different Indigenous range of programs that are all over Australia at the moment. And there's a lot of um, deadly mobs that are doing, you know, caring for country initiatives, you know, looking after sea country, looking after 
um, land as well in, in regards to, you know, coastal revegetation um, and rehabilitation of land to better prepare for disasters. So I know up our way we have some ranges that, you know, are, are really looking at the seawall structures and, and how do we, um, you know, plant more trees to build a bit more stronger foundations for when tidal, um, you know, the tidal storms are, are coming through um, and, and coming into our, in, into our communities. They're the sorts of stuff that are now being considered around the Indigenous Ranger programs where they're looking at that as in a, a conservation but a preparedness part around risk reduction of, of um, you know, disaster impacts in, in, on country. And even though I was um, doing all that, it's around maintaining and, and protecting those cultural heritage sites as well. So often we come in to work in communities perhaps that have had a very mass, uh, a mass displacement of traditional peoples or a lot of peoples who don't necessarily have connection to the country that they uh, are related to. You kind of mentioned this earlier, Sam. I'm just wondering how that massive displacement that has taken place in Australia through colonialisation it's had this ongoing impact on many generations. But how does that work when you talk about preservation and passing on cultural knowledge and how you kind of apply that within a disaster context, particularly when so much of that has been lost? I think for our historical owners, we'd, we'd probably acknowledge them as, as in other Aboriginal and, and Torres Strait Islander peoples that have been either relocated or, or relocated on their own cause or from other sort of... Um, whatever reasons, for us it's, it is about learning and, and sharing that knowledge around caring for country and hopefully some uh, one day they'll probably go back to their own homelands and, and, and have that knowledge or, or they may connect up with their own um, traditional owner groups and, and they may have that connection already and they'll be, you know, learning and, and talking about some someone else's ways of um, caring for country and looking after country and and um, and building on that knowledge. But if they're in other people's location, I still think there's no harm in in, in supporting caring for country initiatives because, um, as I said, Mother Earth to us as in First Nations people is is the blood of, of, of survival and, and we all have a, a responsibility to protect it. And it's just about working with those traditional owner groups to support their part of the country, but also um, trying to get connection back to your own areas in regards to knowledge, family kinships um, and cultural heritage sites, but also culture in general, whether it be um, physical or, or spiritual or even through storytelling. Um, it's about trying to learn and, and capture as much knowledge as possible to then... Um, you know, share with the, the future generations that are going to be the next leaders in our in the future. It's such big work, isn't it? I, I recently heard you speak about communication around vulnerability versus resilience and how, how that kind of fr is framed within vulnerable communities. What, what are your thoughts on that and what are some of the ways to bridge the gaps experienced by these more vulnerable communities, your own communities, but also more broadly, as you said, there are, there are so many vulnerable groups within the context of of disaster impact and how we work across that very complex <laughs> environment. 
I think for me, and I did mention just this just before, Ryan, vulnerability versus resilience. And uh, a lot of the times the disaster management space will identify the groups that I mentioned before as vulnerable groups, vulnerable peoples. And through my experience and, and some of the recovery group members, our people have been resilient since colonisation. You know, we've adapted to change through environmental changes, societal changes of populations um, entering our country, but also systemic changes. So we're pretty resilient in the sense of over 60, 70,000 years we've been on this, this planet and we've, we've, we've learned how to adapt to, to change, but time keeps changing and, and we have to change with the times. But as for vulnerability, I think for me, we need to really bring the word in around marginalism and it's not the people who are vulnerable, it's a system that makes people vulnerable. And for us, it's around how do we create a better system in our practices, in our connections and support to community, marginalised communities to to build that resilience, fat empowerment into their own groups or into themselves to then be more resilient for future events because at the moment we're, we're, we're really focusing on the vulnerability of people where it's our systems that are failing us, unfortunately, and we just need to really step back, review our, our systems to factor in some of these groups that we've um, identified and help them to to grow and make choices for themselves around what's best for their community in regards to preparedness, response and recovery. Mm, so true, that sort of self-determination is so very necessary. And it's interesting, isn't it, when you, say, when you talk about systems because the vulnerability index that, that's been built at the moment is all about infrastructure and access and time to this a bit of equipment or that a bit of equipment it's not actually looking at the the complexities of those human connections and the social compatibility that we that are are so very present in our communities particularly vulnerable communities wouldn't you say because there's so much more need for them in the first place yeah most definitely and as i said even with the infrastructure um if we come at that human-centered approach um everything comes back to the people either way, mm. whether we're, we're talking environment, um, you know, political infrastructure. Um, and, and as you said, as for the communities, um, you know, if we look at some of the remote communities that are um, up, up my way, for example, they only have so many different support services on the island. They're fly-in, fly-out services. So consistency, capacity, capability um, is very... Uh, challenging, it's strained when a disaster does hit Um, and a good example is COVID um, that we're all experiencing at the moment where those fly-in and fly-out support services are being restricted to how how many um, people or, you know, the the testing of uh, um, before they they travel over to um, uh, into a community Um, it really has an impact on the people itself and the communities because then they're missing out on essential services, whether it be um, therapeutic services or, or counselling services or, or um, you know, educational services for young people to, to, to keep their schooling going, even though they've got school and educational um, uh, structures in place. It's about the human resources that we need to keep um, consistent over there. And if, if people are impacted by that, in a remote setting or, or in an Indigenous setting, 
um, that has a greater impact on, on learning and, and outcomes for, for our mob. Sam, I've been really fortunate to work with you on our National Creative Recovery Task Force. It's a project we've initiated through Creative Recovery Network and brings together representatives from a range of sectors, including health, local government, emergency management. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the task force. It's still pretty new, but especially someone coming from a large disaster management organisation like the Red Cross, what do you think the value is of bringing people together from a range of different sectors as we work towards be building resilient communities? Because, you know, evidently the disaster management sector is about collaboration. How, how do you see a role like something like our task force being supportive? I think the Creative Recovery Task Force is um, great value in regards to um, advocacy and, and influencing um, conversations, changing policy um, in the future, but also supporting communities at the end of the day. At the end of the day, it's going to be about how do we support communi- communities through arts, culture, arts and culture um, in recovery space. So I think with the members that we have in our, in our group, um, it's really good that we can have the opportunity to influence at a national level but also then try to enhance opportunities at a local level. Um, in regards to the Indigenous space, um, you know, my my sort of role and focus within this group is to provide that cultural lens and 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 maybe um, add that extra conversation around what, what can be opportunities, what are the gaps within uh, First Nations communities. I, I don't talk on behalf of any community in particular, but try to create conversations of, um, you know, community needs and 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 where people are coming from from a from a local grassroots perspective as well. So for me, I think the group's really good. It's 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 new, it's exciting, and um, I think with the the strategy that we develop for our our members and and the group going forward, will be really a um, a really big advocacy and influence piece that I can see. Um, in this sector. Well, change takes so long, doesn't it? You know, we've got such an entrenched culture within disaster management ecology and there's lots of shifting happening at the moment. What are you most excited about where where the direction is changing? What's kind of... What are you following with great excitement about potential new developments? I think for me, the the inclusion piece, so... As I said, we're not just looking at a community as a whole. Um, we're starting to look at those different um, communities within a community. And if we can tap into those conversation pieces of um, specific groups' needs um, and 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 what they're asking for, for around recovery support, that's the exciting piece that we're taking on board, starting to have conversations and trying to let community lead that conversation rather than um, experts telling communities what they need. So for me, it's it's really around um, bottom-up approach and and getting, getting the information, the intel from the community themselves. And then we try to, do, to support those um, conversation pieces and filter it back down to bring those um, needs into, turn them into action around their, their um, their requests, I suppose. 
Yeah, it's quite a it's quite a shift, isn't it? As you know, our focus is on the role culture and the arts can play to support and strengthen communities and to give them a voice, I suppose, in, in, in the same way that you're, you're articulating this capacity for them to make decisions for themselves. I wonder if you have any examples from your own life or your work as seeing how this is played out in action, the application of culture and the arts as a kind of guiding support for community's voice. I think I could give a, a, a small example. Back in 2019 in Townsville, when we had the monsoonal event, the big floods that occurred in Townsville and, and the northwest region up in up north in, in the North Queensland area. After the actual event took place, we started to form different recovery groups. So local human and, and social recovery group was formed. And through that group, we had a range of different support services on board to look at the recovery journey. And, and as we know, recovery isn't just a immediate sort of instant where you can help people to to try to get back to their lives as soon as possible it's it's a pretty long journey and people are still recovering it can take you know months to years and and many years unfortunately so what we did is we had this group activated and through that group we did do the identification of some of the marginalized groups that were impacted and and First Nations group were identified as, as one of those groups. And what we, how we went forward in, in regards to the identification, we end up forming different recovery task force groups. So one of my functions within the group was to connect a range of different support services that have a focus around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander support and bring them into the conversation piece of what were the impacts of our people through the, the flood event some of the challenges that they faced within getting support and in the recovery journey, what are we looking at in regards to long-term support for some of our people? And it was good that we could have a have a collective to have those conversations. Then what, what occurred was I was then able to bring it back to the human and social recovery group, which is basically run through the local government sector in in that region and put all the information on the table and then we tried to work out ways of supporting those needs and and ways of bringing a community back into uh, the new norm I suppose after the event so in short the best thing that was delivered through that approach was creating a voice for our people bringing conversation to the table at a at a local government level and and community services sector level where people were aware of our First Nations people's impacts, gaps, needs and how we need to move forward in walking alongside our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in in, in a healing journey. So, yeah, it was more around creating voice. We didn't uh, make big inroads in the sense of um, changing, changing the world sort of in, in a sense, but um, <laughs> we were able to create the voice uh-huh. and then able to table that with the uh, government sectors. Well, that's the beginnings of change in the world, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose in terms of bringing alternative ways to unpack or give people voice, that those kind of systems are there for us to activate and to be able to influence and to bring new 
new ideas or new cultural strategies or new creative ways of working with each other. So the systems have use in the sense of giving us an avenue to to open new perspectives, particularly within the kind of working structure that emergency management or disaster management works through. Yeah, and I think identifying our local champions in communities itself, we have a range of not just individuals but community groups that do a lot of uh, different stuff to empower Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and, and a, a particular group which is they plan and develop and implement cultural arts um, performances. They do cultural art workshops for not just Indigenous community members but all of community to to really open up the awareness around traditional art, arts and crafts and, and culture but also that sense of healing when people start to embed in arts and culture you can you can just go in a world of your own and, and really get a sense of healing through that sort of practice itself. So I think for me it was around identifying those local champions within a community to bring out that sort of space as well. Sam, if you could add something to the mix or you have some sort of thing that you would like to see happen or a new vision for the future in terms of this work, what what would you like to see happen? Or what would you see as a kind of beautiful step forward into some change? Yeah, look, I think for the First Nations space around building community resilience, it's around our disaster management sector, whether it be government or non-government agencies, it's around investing in this conversation, investing resources, investing support and doing practical actions that we that communities can see on the ground rather than just, um, you know, in a policy or in a document that people go, okay, well, it's not just another um, conversation piece that's been put on paper but not actually implemented into benefiting our community. So for me, it's around investment, creating that voice, empowering our people and collaborating as a community to heal the, heal the journey around disaster recovery. Yeah, well, I think it seems that a lot of your work you're doing is really action on the ground from both ends. So thanks, Sam, for coming and chatting with us today and thank you for all your work and thank you for your involvement in the Creative Recovery National Task Force. It's been a real pleasure to meet you and find out about your work and I really look forward to walking with you on that journey. It's pretty exciting, I think. Thanks, Gosh. It's been great to connect with you and I look forward to moving forward with our Creative Recovery Task Force group as I said, also being that advocacy and influence piece to make change within this sector around recovery for First Nations people. Thank you again. Thanks for joining me for Creative Responders in Conversation. And a special thanks to Sam for making the time to speak with me. If you'd like to access episode transcripts and research links related to this podcast, head over to creativerecovery.net.au where you can find all of our past episodes and materials relating to each one. Next month, we'll be back with a new episode of our documentary series, taking you to the Wurrabinda Arts and Culture Centre in regional Queensland. I hope you can join us then. This podcast is produced by me, Skosha Monkovic, and my Creative Recovery Network colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Glenn Morrow. Thanks for listening.